We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Hello and welcome to The Interruption with Chandra Nair. This is the podcast of the Global Institute for Tomorrow. I am Olivia. And today we will be speaking about the Asia Investor Conference that Chandran Nair Chandran spoke at last week in Hong Kong. Um, the Asia Investor is actually one of the largest investor conferences in the world. And uh, Chandran was invited to uh, be the opening keynote um, after a panel that spoke about responsible investing and sustainability. Um, so Chandran, maybe you can uh, share with us quickly about what the investor conference was about and what you were invited to speak about and your take on it. Thank you. Um, the Asia Investor uh, is an annual event that is uh, hosted in Hong Kong and it brings together about 300 investors from around the world, but mainly from Asia. And it's a conference that this year um, looked to discuss what is in everyone's mind, which is essentially the climate change issues, the, the need for environmentally responsible uh, investments, particularly in relation to natural resource uh, issues, and of course, the other thing that's on everyone's minds, which is the scourge of plastics. So I was asked to particularly talk under the theme of big uh, mega trends uh, and essentially the existential threat of climate change. And my argument that much of the narrative at the moment is based on uh, emission reductions rather than adaptation to a whole new reality and that investments need to be directed towards both combating as well as seeking opportunities for adaptation. Um, I made uh, a couple of points at the start of my keynote, particularly in response to the opening panel which is meant to set the stage. And I found myself in a situation that uh, I had listened to a panel that, for me, typified what's so wrong with uh, most of these conferences. Uh, speakers chosen so that they speak to the, the preferences, the sponsors. They speak to audiences hoping that they do not in any way um, uh, put a pin in the bubble of their collective denial and at the same time think that uh, people who are in the investment world should talk about these things but never be confronted about the realities of the decisions they make. So that's what I found myself, um, can I say, almost provoked by the opening panel to, to, to address. And you said that the number of conferences um, that focus on this topic of investor responsibility has grown. Um, over the years, uh, but the content um, is often uh, devoid of the detail, um, of the real detail around some of these issues. So what are some of the issues that you wanted uh, to share with the audience um, at the conference? So the, the main thing that I wanted to share with the audience is that uh, I think if I rec recollect my first statement was, uh, I've been going to conferences like this for 20 years. Mm -hmm and I've been listening to the same old tepid nonsense uh, of people who supposedly now have a mandate uh, and interest and a motivation to do things, then essentially, um, you know, sugarcoat what is, as we all know, and the science is very clear, the existential threats that, that we face. And I think this is a free pass that has been given to people at these conferences 
uh, because on one hand, an attraction to the conference, and this is a real irony, is to put the big issue of climate change and call it the mega trend. So that's the advertising campaign. Get everybody in the room. But on the other hand, there's a silent contract between the audience and the speakers. We will not touch anything that suggests you are to blame. Do not attach any responsibility to anybody. Do not make any political statements. And my God, please say we can all win. And that is the, the silent sort of conspiracy and, and contract that these, the, these have. What has clearly happened, as I said, is that you know, this has been going on for 20 years. Of course, in the last five, six years, it's become even more, and I'm going to use the word, more fashionable to have these. Put this as the prime draw, and then fill panel, panels with people who don't say anything, who are essentially prisoners to an existing mantra, who are not bold and brave. And I would, in fact, say in complete denial. So I wanted to essentially use the license that uh, I have, the intellectual freedom to challenge. And if I was never invited back again, then so be it. But I can go into what I said, but I can tell you that the audience is super receptive. So there is, there is a, a real mismatch between this hidden contract between the idea that, you know, bring people who will have big names, say nothing, and, the, and, and use a theme that will attract a lot of people, and everyone will be happy. But actually, most people want someone to say something that is bold because they know the truth. And secondly, they want ideas. So why is it that this silent contract exists? And I think this is one of the great tragedies of business conversation, business uh, uh, forums. Uh, where no new ideas are, are provided. Yet, you know, you go to all business conferences and they want to talk about disruption. The only disruption they'll talk about is essentially technology, digital technology. But my God, the, most, the thing that they most fear is a disruptive narrative. And so that's what I wanted to convey. And I said a couple of things to, to start with, which is to argue that, firstly, if you are serious about things, then you have to really understand what the mega trends are. You can't uh, camouflage mega trends in the language of win-wins and what's good for you, uh, what's good for us will be good for you, and then not call out essentially blatant wrongs, right? You have to be able to do this. We can't change things without that. Secondly, you cannot have a people who have really no deep content apart from a superficial understanding of these issues to sort of appear on panels and then pay lip service. And thirdly, I think we have to essentially have panels where we have an aggressive debate, and that's another problem with these conferences, particularly investment conferences, where they bring the same old suspects, everyone agrees with each other, they all say it's terrible, but my God, they will not say how they are to essentially take responsibility for it. So then I can go on into the sort of examples I've given about what they might actually do. Sure, Would you like do. me to go? Yeah, okay. that would be great. So for instance, I said, uh, there are three things that, uh, before I get into some examples, mm -hmm. there's another uh, uh, very, very obvious tendency that happens at all of these conferences. Uh, these, you have these investment managers who will say, you know, as sure as uh, night follows day, the next generation really care. And then you have that super hype about millennials. And I reminded them their view of millennials is essentially distorted 
by what they hear from their very privileged kids. Being the children of investment managers, they represent like 0.1% of the world's population. But if millennials are an age group, essentially, as far as I understand it, born in the 80s, etc., mm -hmm. then the largest population of millennials are young people born in the developing world. These people do not go to Starbucks, they do not have Wi-Fi everywhere, and they don't chill out with their iPads and connect with everybody. So this conversation of millennials has now become, uh, uh, is, it's become an epidemic. Using millennials, which is essentially rich kids from well-educated uh, well families in the developed world. But if millennials are an age group, 80% of them are in the developing world, they don't have anything. So in fact, they are the other end of the spectrum, but they are the ones now who need the basic needs. Fulfilling their basic needs will essentially create upheavals in terms of constraints, etc., which will require us to redefine our ideas. So that's one issue. Yeah. The second thing I said is very interesting is that senior investors, managers, people who invest billions of dollars, who by definition, may not run countries, or may not even be CEOs, but are powerful decision makers, find it so easy and shamelessly abdicating responsibility to the next generation. So I called them out. I said, your, 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 your you know, great ability to deflect the questions, put it onto your children, and then uh, pretend your children, who are the most privileged in the world, represent the next generation. First, it's a lie. Secondly, you cannot deny the fact that you need to take responsibility. It's now. We can't wait 20 years. Mm -hmm. And how ridiculous to suggest that you will wait. So it's the ultimate application of responsibility. So if you're powerful now, you have to make the decisions. You can't kick the, the can down the road. So that's the other point I made. The third point I try to make then is, do you have the ability to move beyond what I call the paralysis by analysis that many of these financial institutions are bogged down in? You know, numerous EGS reports done by the accounting firms, etc., which essentially help you uh, to seduce yourself into uh, a feeling that you're doing things, but it's essentially a perfect camouflage to not do anything because the analysis is so complex. And then creating another layer of bureaucracy of reporting. You've got to just do these things, and these are not rocket science. So then I gave some examples of what real action looks like. So the first one I gave was, for instance, I cited the, the fact, that the good news, that you know Singapore's largest bank, DBS, uh, which is one of Asia's largest banks, uh, last month announced that they would no longer be investing in coal-fired power plants. That is a major decision for a bank. Now, so how many of you are going to do this? How many of you are going to say, if climate change is the, the existential threat, are you willing to take a decision? Uh, and I'm not calling for a blanket decision because there are some situations in which coal-fired may be an option, etc., but essentially say we are going to move away from coal-fired. And I, I argue you do not need an EGS matrix to make that decision, nor do you need to refer to the SDGs, and it's just what has become the language. And then I, I talked about other things, and for instance, one of the panel members had made what I thought was, uh, again, one of those statements where 
He didn't want to suggest anything was bad and referred to the palm oil industry and the pressures they are on, but said, you know, it's neither here nor there and you can all have your own opinions about palm oil, etc. And I said, that's cl a classic example here again of nobody call making any calls on what is right or wrong. I said, I come from Malaysia. I would never say that the palm oil industry must be shut down because a lot of people essentially depend on it. But I will at the same time be the first to admit that the palm oil industry is essentially responsible for a huge amount of externalities and we must be much more responsible in managing it. And that management of that ecosystem um, in terms of the palm oil industry requires investors, requires the state and requires communities. But for investment committee to sit here and say that the palm oil industry is neutral is a lie. So, so you need to call it out. So you're not saying that investors should not invest in an industry that is so important to a country's uh, income or to the people's well-being and to employment. You're saying that it needs to be managed. So did you, it yeah. needs to be managed better from kind of all the stakeholders. Did you give examples of what that means? Well, for instance, um, um, if you're an investor, and I know there are Hong Kong companies, uh, investing in virgin forest destruction in Kalimantan for palm oil expansion, that is a no-no. But that is something you can easily mandate. You do not need an analysis. You can say, we will not do that. Now, is there is an investment opportunity in denuded uh, secondary rainforest, and you have done your analysis and looked at it, and there is a need and the, uh, the, there's a potential here, then that's the next layer of decision-making. So there's a huge amount of decisions. But you cannot go around saying, um, you know, we, we, we don't think palm oil industry is destructive, etc. The palm oil industry is destructive. Like any other thing, the coal mining industry is destructive, even if you take away the, the, the climate change impacts. But the issue of investors now, if you're responsible, is to look at each particular condition and decide where you're going to take a stand. And quite often, it's just a moral stand. And um, so going back to coal, then there's tough decisions. So there's a tough decision that DBS said, we will not invest in coal. Now, some uh, industries, and as a Malaysian, I say this with some caution, but some investors may say, we will not invest any more in palm oil industry in Southeast Asia. That is a decision you're taking. And that, of course, forces governments to rethink how they use land, etc. Because there's a lot of land, if you want to expand the palm oil industry, that can be, can be utilized without it extending into virgin rainforest. So these are, these are decisions and positions you need to take. And these companies, these investors, I take a very, very superficial uh, view because they do not want to take a stand, because they do not want to disrupt their business models. So I argue that they have to essentially, in their investments, look at the business models they are investing in. And it's very easy to see which business models are essentially extractive, rent-seeking, and externalized costs. You don't need to overanalyze these things, and it requires leadership. And I would be bold just to say, that the investment fraternity has very poor leadership when it comes to these issues. So you recommended towards the end of your uh, keynote
that investors should take a stand. And yes. you liken that with making moral decisions. Yes. So what, if you were to summarize, what were the three things that the investors could do as a community to really take that stand? So for first, uh, for the first example, I would say take a stand on uh, on coal. And I'm not going to say take a stand on climate change because that it then allows people to get really fuzzy because it's such a big issue. So then in uh, paralysis... Uh, uh, analysis and then death, doing nothing, right? So don't don't say that because that gives them a really easy way out. Say coal. What are you going to do? You can take a stand on it and you can be very clear. And it doesn't have to be a fifty-page report. It's two pages. What is your stand and make it public, like DBS has done. Second, uh, you can look at large plantation industries, and I'm going to single out. I'm not going to single out palm oil industry, but you can look at that and say, where is it destructive? Where is it affecting biodiversity? What will we do? That's the that's the third. Uh, second, the third, I said, anywhere that there is essentially a conflict with water, you should have very clear criteria about what you are going to do. So I gave an example, for instance. Um, if you're building, if you're an investor in high-end real estate, which, um, you know, uh, uh, which is one end of the spectrum, but I'm just going to give that an example, and you're building uh, high-rise apartment blocks for, for the millionaires of Mumbai, and as typical with all the, and no one's learned any lessons about, you know, uh, overconsumption and uh, wastage, and the plan is to build uh, a swimming pool uh, and this is a real example on each floor for the multimillionaires, you should say no. Because in that state, there's already a water crisis. Most Indian cities have a water crisis. And millions of dollars should not buy you exclusive rights to swimming pools uh, or, or that you can own on a high-rise high building. So you don't invest in it. You can invest in it and we will invest in it provided there's one swimming pool which is communal for everyone, and if you're pretty hardcore, you can say that swimming pool should be also be open to the community 50% of the time. That would be just changing the whole order of exclusivity, elitism, and all of those things, which essentially we should reject as ways of organizing our societies. And the third one I talked about is, if you're investing in the food supply chain, look at two things. Uh, what is the chemical footprint? What is the use of plastic? And what is the wastage? Because food, uh, the food industry mm -hmm. can be a whole range of things, from farming right through to processing, right through to distribution and consumption. But you can look at, so are we on the front end with the farming side? Was the food, what's the chemical footprint? What's the plastic usage? Make a decision. How are you going to uh, influence that? Because money talks and bullshit walks. So, you know, you can make an influence. If you're on the processing side, you can influence how much plastic is used, what chemical additives, how much water is used, and all of those things, um, and particularly the wasted side. So, but on the flip side of things, you can also make decisions to essentially address the problem from an investment point of view, rather than trying to mitigate the problem of what you're investing in. These are two very different things. So those are the kinds of things. And finally, I'd say I suggested that rather than look at, we do certain things, but now we're going to reduce the impact, look at the adverse impacts that have taken in place in the planet over the last 70 years of you know, unfettered free markets, indiscriminate use of uh, chemicals, destruction of rainforests, and say what problem can we solve that we will essentially create new markets for. So my classic example always is, 
you know, low-cost housing is probably going to be one of the biggest threats given the rate of urbanization. And there's the extreme issue of Hong Kong, which is a different society, and there's the India one, where low-cost housing solution needs to be a 3,000 US dollar prefabricated home. Would investors go and essentially team up with a material science company, a fabrication company, uh, to help solve this problem, which requires finance, science, logistics, etc. That's a whole different way of looking at a new opportunity. So on one hand, investors talk about we're always searching for opportunity. Uh, I, I think the search for opportunities is within a very narrow, uh, within inside box. So that's the kind of far-reaching thinking. So if you want to be really thinking about the future and you want to have a conference about f mega trends, well, let's be honest. And then let's provoke solutions that are real and can create, if you want, you know, opportunities for investors to be positive contributors to, to the world we live in. Thank you so much, Chandran. Uh, that was very insightful. And I believe you told me that the audience at the uh, investor conference was also very receptive. Yes, I, I, you know, you take a gamble when you're very outspoken, mm -hmm. as sometimes I do. I am, but I'm always, uh, I've always taken the view from experience that people really enjoy it. I'm sure a couple of people hated my guts, but most people turned up and said, you know, that is what we should be listening to. And I wish most speakers and conference organizers would get people with very deferring views mm -hmm. to go and share their, their thoughts. So thank you. Thank you. So that wraps up uh, this episode of The Interruption uh, with Chandra Nair, and uh, please tune in next time. We return you now to your regularly scheduled program. No,